Listening to Living La Viva Voce. My name is Adam. My name is Meg. And this week we are talking about computers. Computers! Yes, it is my turn uh, to present my oral defense on all things computers, or rather, doing lots of research and deciding upon one subsection of this huge, enormous, formidable field that Adam knows so much more about, but has designated me to present upon and i'm really excited i bet you can't wait till we get to e oh well <laughs> i'll figure out something for d so how drunk are you Meg? i am really drunk okay so let me just say that in the last two weeks or the last two recording sessions in the first week i had red wine and then in the um, second week, I had Rebad and uh, the strawberry beer, this Belgian beer called Fruli, which is very tasty. And today is actually Easter Sunday. And so in Ontario, all of the uh, means to procure heavy uh, alcohol are, are closed or hard liquor, I suppose, are they're all closed. And so I've had to go digging about in my cupboards for some booze. I found this bottle of Shavaz. Lent booze. Yeah, Lent booze. Well, Lent is over now. But um, Shavaz Regal. Shivas Regal. A 12-year-old blended scotch whiskey. I found it in the back of my cupboards. I opened it about 10 years ago. So I'm hoping it's not gonna turn my tummy into a sick place because I need to go do stuff after this. But I'm mixing this scotch whiskey with some Canada dry ginger ale and I'm also drinking a Perrier as a chaser. How about you? We've been on a journey these last 30 minutes. We, we have been, we've been on a journey. This has been, you wait until we release the pregame recording. It's gonna be um, rough. The, Adam had a really bad time today. <laughs> this is a really bad time. I'm feeling very buzzed all of a sudden. I think, I'm not sure if it's sugar or if it's alcohol, but I am feeling really buzzed. Adam's going to lose um, a leg because of this. He's going to go into a diabetic coma. We're going to have to amputate his ankle or whatever. It's it's all for the listeners. It's all for the listeners. Yeah, all, no, ten, um, of the, all 10 of our listeners. All 10 of the listeners. Adam's going to lose his of- leg. The three of our friends and the, and the perverts that love the sound of my English voice. Are we going to have to beep that? <laughs> no, this week I am drinking... So this week I was actually able to go out before Easter uh, weekend and acquire myself some liquor. And I've actually acquired a sweet and sour liqueur, which is not not to say that it's based on the Chinese sweet and sour like chicken or something, right? But uh, a sweet and sour liqueur flavoured apple. And it's called Sours. It is horrible on so many levels it's like ground up pez mixed with like pure ethanol and for any of our canadian listeners any of our um, ontario listeners sours with a z it's very akin to sourpuss which is this quite large bottle of brightly colored sweet and sour liqueur that is usually like raspberry flavored or like peach flavored it's nasty i've had a little bit of that because my roommate that i had in my undergrad she had some of that (laughs) 
I think she enjoyed are talking, it. I, are we talking about Yeah, we are talking I don't know to what extent she feels comfortable getting her name included in here, but no, she's she she had person some of that. A. Yeah, person A. Person but, of interest A. Person of interest A. But she had some uh, sourpuss that we had to get rid of, and it was not the most pleasant of beverages, and Adam has done a significant number of them. Bear in mind, the alcohol, like the proof of it is about like 10%, right? So it's relatively, relatively low to be doing shots, but I think the reason why he's pacing himself is because of the high sugar. So let us establish the ground rules again. We both get liquored up. Meg has prepared a presentation that will hopefully act as her defense of her PhD dissertation. And at the end, I will decide if she is awarded a PhD. Uh, I will interject with questions relevant to the topic as she goes through. And Meg is going to give us a lecture on computers today. Yes, or rather one element of the, the large uh, umbrella that is computers. Yes, obviously computers is a very broad term. We always try and pick very broad terms to give the other partner a chance to be creative. Be innovative. Innovative even, one might say. Yes, exactly. So without any further ado, would you like to take it away, Meg? Yes, I would like to take it away. So I'm going to begin by giving you a quick definition without spoiling the title of my presentation. And then I'm going to give you the title and then I'm going to deliver the rest of the uh, defense. Just because the title without will, without a doubt, spoil what I'm going to be talking about. I sense a loophole coming. Yes, okay. So according to the Oxford English Dictionary, the first known use of the word computer was found in The Young Man's Gleanings, published in 1613 uh, by writer Richard Braithwaite. And it refers to um, a human computer, as in one who computes, one who calculates, right? Related more towards um, math, towards counting, um, things like that. Okay. In the early 20th century, um, with the Turing machine, that helped to provide the modern use term. And so, of course, you know, Adam, when I say something like computer for the layman's, uh, for, you know, just in a colloquial use, of course, we don't think of one person who computes. We rather think of, you know, a box, a screen, um, some sort of electronic that does all the work, right? And the Turing machine in 1937 helped to uh, provide this new definition for computer, which is uh, programmable, <laughs> programmable, that sounds so funny when I'm drunk, programmable <laughs> digital electronic computer. That being said, you know, all of this cool hardware, I learned about CPUs, software, languages and programs, the immaterial, that's not what I'm going to be talking about today. Instead, my presentation is titled, The Highly Irrational. Computing conspiracies in the modern age. That's right. I'm going to be talking about conspiracy theories, all things related to computers, electronics, the world wide web. Okay, hang tight because this is going to get crazy. Okay, so my primary source that I'm referring to comes from InfoWorld US, which I don't think is very reputable, but there we go. And the title of this article is top 10 tech conspiracy theories of all time. It's written by Glenn McDonald and it was published in 2014. Um, so about seven years ago, but don't worry, I will update us on the most current um, tech conspiracy, okay? And the subtitle of this article, which I find is just so pleasurable, so delightful is 
From wingdings to wage fixing, a leisurely stroll through some of the most infamous IT intrigues. Now, even though McDonald, you know, very thoroughly explores 10, I'm going to be covering five. And what I want you to do actually is, as I explain these, um, to give me either a little background to tell me to what extent this is accurate and, and, and you know, possibly realistic. Whether or not this is truly conspiracy or possibly something in reality. I'm looking forward to this. I'm really excited to hear some of these conspiracy theories and hopefully get a chance to debunk them. Because yeah. I, I, I hear a lot of conspiracy theories around computers. I hear, you know, obviously, you know, I mean, you only have to watch police procedurals, right? Where you see like, oh, we've hacked into the mainframe and <laughs> can i just say before the I frame. <laughs> can i just say before i begin okay you have to go on youtube our listeners please go on youtube type in like castle the tv show from like you know the 2010s um and hacking just type in like castle and hacking because you get the most delightful two minute video of this hacking scene in castle where the guy is literally you can see him just pounding away on his keyboard making absolutely no sense and you get that kind of light green matrix font as he like debugs a bomb like 10 miles away it is beautiful <laughs> one of my so i remember quite vividly when i did computer science so when i did my computer science degree my undergraduate computer science degree mr robot came out for the first time and obviously mm -hmm. If you know Mr. Robot, Mr. Robot is um, the show about a cybersecurity expert, Rami Malek. Okay, well, his name isn't Rami Malek. The actor's name is Rami Malek, right? Sorry, yes, not the, <laughs> not the character's name is Rami Yeah, no, the actor's name is Rami Malek. And he ostensibly plays this um, cybersecurity expert who's sort of turned sort of pseudo-hacktivist. I actually have to admit I never got all the way through the series. Um, but it was really popular amongst Yeah, I have to admit, I've never seen it, um, but, you know, obviously I know it's incredibly big. I won't be talking about that show, I won't be actually talking about any show, but I will be going into five, I think, really, really well-known conspiracy theories surrounding both computers and just technology in general. Alright, so, top five Conspiracy theories, according to InfoWorld US. <laughs> okay, <laughs> the leading source. The reputable, the reputable, reputable journal <laughs> on all things uh, conspiracy. Number one, it's what they call perpetual product obsolescence. This idea that companies, most uh, likely like Apple, Samsung, they sabotage their own products to encourage upgrades and new purchases. And the writer equated this to the auto industry, which really kind of surprised me because I kind of get this idea of like, you know, iPhones and like computers being like purposefully bugged or like messed up so that people have to buy new stuff. I did not know this was a thing in the, the car world. So I was more surprised I about did. that. Okay. I genuinely did. So I am familiar with this concept or at the very least it's a conspiracy theory. I don't know how true it is or how bared out by facts is. Henry Ford preferred the um, oil-based or the gas-based motor car, the combustion engine, over electric engines. Uh, and you'll bear in mind that at, at the time, electric motors were still very much a, a concept, right? You know, they were still very much a, 
a viable area of research in the automotive industry. Yeah, so what you're saying is it could have been possible to make cars electric, even from the beginning. Yeah, even from the beginning, because ultimately, you know, like, we knew how to create these electric motors. Obviously, the technology wasn't there, but then the technology for the internal combustion engine wasn't entirely there right you know it you know the combustion engines we know it today would be completely alien to the combustion engine as we knew it a hundred years ago but the reason the combustion engine was favored was because it basically required so many more parts it needed to be replaced so much more often and obviously you know all of that was sort of like a a a sub product that ford could sell and actually you know what this this is really borne out by reality because if you look at something like a Tesla, and I, I'm not here to advocate for Elon Musk's electric car because I'm not the biggest fan of Elon Musk personally either. Yeah, I feel like we have to we being. have to get that out there, <laughs> or maybe not. Seeing as you know, maybe in ten years or so, he'll be like our world leader or whatever. I don't know. I, I dread to think. Yeah, what knock on wood. I'm knocking on wood right Musk now. Coin. I'm doing it quietly so it doesn't pick up on the audio. If you do look at like Tesla's stuff like that, they have much lower maintenance costs because obviously you have to change stuff like oil a lot less frequently obviously where you don't have a combustion engine in there there's so many things that simply don't need to be maintained so there's there's definitely a solid case for what you what you mentioned earlier what was the term again <laughs> perpetual product obsolescence see the thing is you spoke a lot about cars which like i have to admit i didn't kind of get that at first but now that you explain it i do that being said when i had read this for the first time i had without a doubt agreed with it because i was like i truly think that with each upload i i own a lot of mac products i own a lot of uh, a lot of apple sure. products i truly think they are getting crappier shittier whatever over time because i have my laptop for um almost seven years now and to be fair, it's holding out quite well, but you know, I've heard horror stories, right, where people, their stuff, you know, gets all messed up after a year or two, just as there's a new release coming upon. I, it's hard to say. I don't want to say that there's not a huge conspiracy theory. Oh, no, there's definitely a huge conspiracy theory. What I'm asking you is whether or not it's, like, realistic, whether or not it's uh, supportable with, you know, evidence and stuff like that. Well... I mean, I think as a commute scientist, what I would say is I think you would be shocked at how unsure we are as as a as a industry that is of the quality of what we're building. So one of my favorite one of my favorite sort of books I've ever read on computer science. I don't read many books on computer science. This tells you. Well, you don't read a lot of books. Of, I don't read a lot of books. I don't read a lot of books on computer science because who reads books yeah. on computer science? It's not really a way. Of, one of my favourite books is by this Brazilian programmer, and I'm going to get his name wrong, but I'm going to give it a go. Robert Irelemsky. Oh, uh, oh boy. <laughs> I'm sure. Um, he he was one of the developers of a programming language called Lua, which if you're into uh, games development, you're into sort of how games are developed, Lua is a massive language for games development and that kind of stuff. And he basically wrote this book on, on how we optimize code. And when we say optimize code, what we're saying is, you know, you know, it's easy to write code that works. It's hard to write code that works well and works fast. 
And one of his best analogies in that book, and it's right at the front of this book, he goes, the computer science industry is responsible for so many really critical infrastructure things, right? You know, you think about nuclear reactors that are built on programs, you think about aeroplanes that are built on programs, you think about all of these different things that have software that underpin them. And he said, and yet, look at something like the aerospace industry specifically, for example, and in order for a plane to take off the ground, every single time it takes off, it has to have a safety check. You know, an engineer has to come out to it, they have to look it over, they have to check engines, they have to do systems checks, they have to check that you know, all of these things, not necessarily because when a plane crashes, it kills so many people that it's noteworthy, but because ultimately the fundamental public trust yeah. is built upon this notion that if we don't build planes that are safe and rarely, but obviously don't never crash, we're not going to be able to convince the public to fly. And yet computer scientists regularly put out code. That is unverified. It's unverified, that's you know, you know, unchecked. You know, we haven't really even proven that it's going to work properly. <laughs> We've just we've just chucked it out there and hoped for the best. Yeah, but what I'm saying, I think what this conspiracy theory is arguing is not that, you know, computer scientists do the whole like unverified stuff, is that there are, you know, these corporations that their their main goal is to produce more and to profit more and what they're doing is intentionally issuing like unverified shitty code such that it encourages these machines to get all wonky early on and then match with the new releases of items and we need to move on but like i i want to hear your opinion on that specifically let me let me conclude on that then bearing in mind that we barely know that code is going to work to begin with why would we actively write bugs in sure like we're asking for more trouble than it's absolutely worth the fact of the matter is is that an iphone will be obsolete in two years regardless of whether we write bugs in regardless of whether or not we write top-notch code simply because that's how our industry works now I'm not saying that they don't necessarily design in flaws, but I would be very surprised because that sounds like a lot more hassle than it's worth. Hey, but that's that's nature of conspiracy theories, baby, and that's not even the craziest <laughs> one. Okay, let's move on. Number two is called the Halloween documents, okay? So this conspiracy theory attempts to address the question, how did Microsoft dominate the market of computers in the late 1990s? <laughs> One theory, okay, the Halloween documents suggest that Microsoft in between October and November of 1998 leaked all of these internal memos which contain these threats and these very like complex ideas on how to diminish the rise of free and open software such as Linux. I don't know. I don't know what these words mean. Okay, but apparently the traditional Microsoft strategy was also revealed and it was called a FUD. F-U-D, fear, uncertainty, and doubt. And that was apparently this like um, advertising, like creating strategy on how like they designed and issued out and sold their products. They found that FUD was apparently ineffective in responding to these developers of free software. So I've heard 
partly somewhat about you know Linux. I don't know really anything about it other than other than the name itself, other than like I've seen you using it or you know whatever. But I found this this idea to be really interesting, right? This idea that like yes, it is this leading company. They specifically respond to these possible surgences, possible you know rises of of you know accessible technology by. Um, you know, planning to really diminish it and, and thus contributing to their, you know, um, success in the long run. So I don't know if this is really a conspiracy theory. Oh God, so it's real. <laughs> Microsoft has a very long and well-documented history of being anti-open source. And, and for those that are unfamiliar with what I mean by open source, so I think the computer industry, the computer science industry, the computer computers industry is very unique in this respect is this idea that when I write code I can essentially show other people what it looks like the the interesting thing about computer science unlike other fields of engineering you think about something like the Eiffel Tower for example right you naturally show what the Eiffel Tower looks like but it's not exactly easy to replicate unless you've got millions of dollars in funds in order to buy all of the necessary steel and engineering capabilities and equipment necessary to build the thing, right? But with programming, when you create something in a programmatic way, you are immediately making it essentially available to someone else, right? So programming is treated as this creative art you know, everyone thinks of programmers, developers, engineers as engineers, right? But they're not engineers. They're actually artists. And I don't mean that in a pretentious That's so way. Nerdy. I mean that in, That's so I nerdy. Don't mean that in a, <laughs> I don't mean that in a pretentious way. I mean that in a literal sense. You know, the law treats programs as artistic works and then copyrights them as such. So when I write a program, if I want to copyright that, I held the copyright on that for the entirety of my lifetime, plus in most jurisdictions, 70 years after my death. And you know, if you're familiar with stuff like the work of Arthur Conan Doyle, you'll see that obviously that's the case in like stuff like that. And you'll see that there's like, there's works of literature that are now very famous that have just come out of copyright and now can be widely- Turned into Muppets movies. Yes, like F. Scott Fitzgerald's um, The Great Gatsby. Jim Henson's company, <laughs> if you're listening, please. Anyway, so I think with in Microsoft, there was definitely this real propaganda machine throughout the 1990s and even through the early 2000s to really diminish open source. And I could go into great lengths into the, the pros and the cons of open source software and you know, being able to see the code that underpins the programs that you use. But it's my dissertation and not yours. But I think the punchline is, and I think the reason that Microsoft has seen such vast success over the likes of Linux, which to be clear, Linux is essentially an operating system, right? You could put it on a computer to use a computer, right? So where you where you go onto Windows and you click the Start menu, you know, Linux has its own Start menu. It has its own applications. It has its own everything, right? But you agree it's not as well known in like a layperson, a t layperson technology, like terminology, yeah. No, no one knows what Ubuntu is. Yeah. No one knows that essentially, you know, you can pay fifty quid for a Microsoft operating system. Bear in mind that back when Microsoft was this height, you paid two or three hundred pounds for a Microsoft operating system. 
or there are a bunch of guys that out of ostensibly the generosity of their own own hearts were maintaining this entire operating system that you could use for free anytime any place on any device at any scale so what i'm getting is that you whether or not you support the title of the conspiracy theory which is you know the halloween documents like you there there is some degree of um validity to this idea oh without a doubt um and i i do want to add one tiny caveat onto the end and I hate that I'm defending a corporation, but Microsoft have become really so much better in recent years at supporting open source software. Yeah, like this conspiracy theory came out of the late 90s. They've put a lot of money into it. Um, Satya Nadell, who's their new CEO, has really turned the company into a very open source positive organization. Okay, my third argument, piece of evidence, can I just preface? I think the last two were pretty tame. Things are about to get really weird, okay? To the point where I don't know to what extent you can use a lot of your experience to defend these conspiracy theories. Which I, let me just say, let me just preface by saying, I think that's the beauty of conspiracy theories, right? Is that you don't have to have any kind of logic. There's no expertise required. Number three, wing dings weirdness. Okay. Is there anything sinister about the symbols slash lexicon associated with wingdings? Conspiracy theorists would like to suggest yes. In 1992, people found that if you put the letters NYC, right, like New York City, into a Word document and converted the font to wingdings, you get these symbols. A skull, a star of David, and a thumbs up. And people were like, hang on a second, is this, you know, being ostensibly like anti-Semitic towards, you know, this this really, really large Jewish population in, in New York City? But that's not where things end, right? 9-11, yeah, I'm about to go there, okay? <laughs> this, okay, this is just crazy. So a lot of like 9-11 truthers and like, you know, folks like that. I, I tried to do some combing around like Reddit and 4chan and stuff like that, but like things really creeped me out. So I had to stop immediately. Um, there there were, were these ideas that messages were being revealed through wingdings. When you entered the address of the World Trade Center or the flight number of the planes um, that, you know, crashed into the tower. So if you put in Q33 and then NY, you get respectively a plane, two buildings or like two squares with lines drawn through them, right? They kind of look like buildings. And then, of course, NY, the skull and the crossbones, and then the skull of David, or the sorry, the star of David. And so people were like, hang on, if we put in this information, you know, corresponding to some of the logistics of 9 11, are we getting this like message? that is like foreshadowing this kind of harrowing event. Before you speak, Adam, let me just debunk this myself. <laughs> it is overwhelmingly a hoax because Q33 doesn't correspond with any of the flight numbers. <laughs> the two flight numbers of the planes that flew into the towers were respectively N334AA and N612UA. So <laughs> very explicitly not Q33. <laughs> But wouldn't it be great if the flight <laughs> number were Q3? <laughs> 
right? Which, which is so funny because I, I can imagine, you know, putting these things on like 4chan or 8chan or YouTube on like these fake flight numbers and either the people making these conspiracy theories not bothering to check the flight numbers or the people reading or listening about these conspiracy theories not bothering to check the flight numbers because <laughs> i'm sure you can agree q33 doesn't sound anything similar to you know the actual flight numbers all i was gonna say is i've just looked up wingdings and i'm not even sure the nyc bit is accurate <laughs> because <laughs> They I might don't... have updated. This was a conspiracy theory from the early 2000s. So I think, like, Wingdings might have, like, whoever, like, makes Wingdings or whatever, they might have kind of discerned this no, potential... But, but a, skull and cross, a skull and crossbones, I think, corresponds to a number. So I I don't even think Wingdings... I don't even think that's accurate. I, I Okay, but isn't it fun? I think it's absurd. <laughs> I think it's remarkable that a font that literally everyone <laughs> yeah. has on their computer has somehow managed to form a conspiracy, a, an anti-Semitic, 9-11-based conspiracy theory without any grounding in truth whatsoever. Any grounding. This is the thing. It's like, this is one of those theories where you open your Word document, right? You change the font to wingdings and you can verify for yourself that this is not grounded in any kind of reason and any kind of evidence but isn't it so fun isn't but it fun to imagine if you open if you open your word document <laughs> bill gates will know yeah bill gates will know exactly exactly there's a lot of winking and, and that's why no there's there's why no one has tested this idea exactly number five Deep Blue versus Kasparov. Okay. IBM Super... <laughs> yes, IBM Supercomputer of Deep Blue versus Gary Kasparov, um, who is, I think, arguably still, like, this grand chess master or whatever he, whatever that's called. In 1996, Kasparov won a six-game match, 4-2, uh, to Deep Blue. And within the year, 1997, Deep Blue had overwhelmingly won. So the rules were basically that uh, technici technicians were allowed to adjust Deep Blue between games, but not during games, right? Uh, but Kasparov suspected cheating because he believed that there was like human creativity. That's what he called it um, in terms of Deep Blue's moves. Um, also, this is where the conspiracy theory like really sets in. Some people <laughs> believe that Deep Blue actually like glitched purposefully in a kind of way that like psyched Kasparov out and so not only was like a better chess player if that makes sense but also like played mind games with um the human chess player and and won through that way this idea that like computers and machines don't get psyched out like they don't have that kind of psychological um reaction and so the machine like either was programmed to or learned to take advantage of like the human emotional psychic response in order to win this is like obviously goofy but i think is you know once again like i know that like in recent years right you have the um ibm watson right this this machine sure. that you know could could win these jeopardy matches right but i think ibm deep blue was like this one of the first instances of can we can we have a machine that beats a man at his own game right so is your question largely around the psychology of deep yeah well this idea i think that the conspiracy theory comes out of like i said this idea of it purposefully glitching or you know having this kind of awareness of 
humans like their capa like our capacities to be psyched out if that makes sense right like i don't think you can psych out a machine i think you can psych out a human right see like i don't know to what extent you can explain this right this is kind of once again in no this. Uh, I, so i don't know the specifics of deep blues architecture so i can't really speak to exactly how its logic is derived but i can speak to my knowledge as an AI expert and, and obviously my my knowledge as an AI expert is actually pretty big. Um, it's it's one of the few areas that I'm quite intimately familiar with in computer science. Um, Sit down because he's about to toot his horn. <laughs> There's only really two fields of artificial intelligence in my mind that could handle playing a chess game. The first is machine learning and like, you know, what what most people think of as artificial intelligence, which is this idea that you give an AI a load of data on past chess matches that have been played. You know, oh, so-and-so did this, and then so-and-so did that, and then so-and-so did this, and then so-and-so did that, and blah, 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 back and forth, you know, and say, figure out how chess is played. And obviously, machines use vast amounts of statistics to work that out, right? They go, well, in 90% of cases, the opening move was X, and then in 70% of cases, the next move was Y, blah, 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 blah. And then the other area is the field that I'm a lot more interested in, and is actually the field that I do a lot of my research in, which is a lot more based on this notion of teaching AIs to plan. And this is a lot more objective rather than subjective. You know, when you when you build a machine based on, well, you know, statistics say we do this and then statistics say we do that, uh, you make them fundamentally vulnerable to the statistics that humans can utilise against them. Because if a human knows that the machine is going to opt for the largest majority, you know, it's going op to opt for the move that most players, most winning players make out of the gate they can then immediately replan all of their decisions based on what they know the machine is going to, you know, it's like this two-dimensional or three-dimensional chess, right? Mm -hmm. uh, psychological chess. Yeah, psychological chess. Possibly if the data showed that when humans bluff in chess, and I, I use bluff in chess very liberally because I don't know if you can bluff in yeah, chess. Yeah, see, the two of us, like, I'm specialized in English. He's specialized in computers and AI. N neither of us are specialized in chess. And so this is truly where no, we're talking out of our I ass. I genuinely don't think you can bluff in chess because surely both of you can... It's not like poker where you only you can see your cards and only like your opponent can see their cards like everyone can see what the board looks like for for adamant uh chess players you know avid chess players rather uh if you would like to correct us please feel free to to write in to comment i think you can bluff on your strategy but i'm not sure you can bluff on the position of your pieces because that's literally not how chess works there may be something in the data that suggests that faking a um, bug may yield a positive outcome, but I would be really surprised if the data was that comprehensive. So my answer is going to be that this conspiracy theory is probably fake. Yeah, but pretty fun. I don't think off the top of my head that you have the kind of data input into a machine in order for it to be able to make those kind of psychological inferences. 
Okay, so like you mentioned, out of the gate, we are we are out with just you know these five wonderful conspiracy theories. Speaking of gates, bonus round for me. Speaking of gates, Bill Gates, microchip, five G in the era of COVID. I mean, the fact that we're recording it in early 2021, it stands that we must discuss this top prescient uh, conspiracy theory surrounding vaccines and um, computers. Okay. <laughs> so the BBC, I found this article um, published in December of 2020, you know, specifying... Does it have the, the word David Icke in it? No, but it specifies these details surrounding the 5G um, and, you know, these Bill Gates microchip conspiracy surrounding both how COVID uh, is transmitted and also the um, sort of true purpose of the vaccine. So apparently in Bolivia uh, last year, there were these theories that cell towers were responsible for um, transmitting COVID and that the uh, vaccines and the reason why Bill Gates was donating so much money to these, um, you know, vaccine um, like, like hubs, right? Like Pfizer, Moderna and stuff like that was because they were secretly implanting microchips to track human actions by way of the vaccine. And, and this is sort of the leading... Um, you know, completely irrational, but of course, like effective, and I say affective, not effective, but like affective kind of um, scare tactic uh, to encourage people not to, um, not to, A, not to take COVID seriously, and B, to not opt for the vaccine when it is their turn to get it. So this is, I think, the kind of, uh, maybe not as funny, right? But certainly the most relevant conspiracy theory related to computers and, and technology of our times. I'll put this into economic terms. For yeah, it's you. hard to joke about this. No, I'll put this into quite simple economic terms. Would you agree with me that the vast majority of the world, even, has either an Android or an Apple device? Yeah. Okay. And I'm talking even in low-income countries. I'm talking in, like, Honduras, even. There you go. There's Apple devices. There's a Well, there's maybe not Apple devices, but there's definitely Android devices on the market very low prices accessible anywhere right bear in mind that to track a population you've really only got to think about do we have at least one person with an electronic device on their person right so in a group of five people for example let's say there's a group of five people they're going to do something rebellious maybe they're maybe they work in a maybe they live in a dictatorial regime and they're going to do something rebellious you know of the five people, is there one of them with a phone? The answer is probably. Yeah. Only because in modern society, there's very few people that function without phones, even in the most remote places. If I, myself personally, was interested in tracking every single human being on the planet, I would simply put a bug in Android and iOS. Are you telling me that it's cheaper to mass manufacture a pandemic and then put thousands of lives at risk and then spend a year producing a vaccine in order to put microchips into people's arms rather than getting one, one person employed at Apple yeah. and one person employed at Google in order to put a backdoor into their software so that you could track the location of every, every human being on the planet. 
If I wanted to track the location of every single human being on the planet, there are a million times easier ways. I, I feel like, you know, obviously, um, wear masks, stay indoors, socially distance, get the vaccine if you're eligible to do so. As much as we are a comedy podcast, as much as we are shwasted, we don't want to joke about these kinds of things because the two of us have been separated because of this pandemic for a long time. And it is in everyone's best interest that we uh, resume some degree of, you know, normalcy. But, you know, I feel like I had to include, I felt like I had to include some degree of a, of a very pertinent modern day conspiracy theory. And with those serious words, let me have uh, my conclusion, <laughs> my, my final remarks on this uh, presentation. I await your, I await your shock revelation. Okay. Well, they're not so much as a shock, as I just wanted to say, you know, why is it that with computers you have this surplus, truly a surplus, of conspiracy theories? I think that partly comes out of the idea that a computer, for even people who you know, for even for lay people, right, even for people with absolutely kind of no educational background, uh, very little, you know, programming experience, um, computers, they understand, and I understand, that the entity is not just the box, right, the entity is not just the screen, it is something that is both hardware and software, it's something that's both electronic, something that's both metal, something that's both tangible, but it's also something that's incredibly immaterial. And this immaterial essence right it, it 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 allows for surveillance it allows for control it allows for this these huge corporations to exert this truly i think inarguable um power over you know millions of people's lives right billions of people's lives and so you know conspiracy theories you know as funny as they are and as ridiculous they are and as scary they are they're this method to kind of fight back, to respond back, to, to go against the grain of, I think, something that is, that the often for, for people uh, is, is always one step ahead of them, always risking the loss of control, right? I think another reason for conspiracy theories, um, you know, related to computers is they're every day, like computers are quotidian, right? Um, some, yeah. And, and, they're kind of fun, right? Like this idea of, of mocking, of making light of really serious matters, uh, of really like ordinary um, events. I think humans just like to do that. And, and of course, uh, just to reiterate, computers are really confusing. They're, they're, they're so confusing, right? Like I'm sure we've all experienced this um, teaching our grandparents how to use computers, how to use phones, or you, Adam, teaching me how to use computers, how to use phones. <laughs> you know, for some people, it's very difficult, I think, to wrap their brain around this kind of technology. And, and I think that coupled with fear, coupled with anxiety, coupled with the awareness that these corporations are using these machines, using this technology to enact tangible consequences on people's lives. You know, that causes people to speculate and it causes people to generate this kind of paranoia. So in conclusion, my presentation, The Highly Irrational, Computing Conspiracies in Their Modern Age, I summed up five um, delicious aughts-related conspiracy theories, one very pertinent conspiracy theory related to uh, computers, and summed up that computers are confusing as hell. Um, they're not just the 
machine, they're not just the screen, um, there's something really, really big. And I think um, it's all about being more literate, being more aware of our resources to prevent any of these really, I think, fun in retrospect conspiracy theories from taking control of our everyday lives. That was actually an amazing presentation. And although you vastly sort of leaned on my knowledge of computers in order to carry your dissertation and your, and your viva out, um, I did really appreciate being able to talk at great length about my subject and being able to, in some cases, dispel and in other cases, verify. Because uh, I have, I think, at some point verified a couple of conspiracy theories here. And that's the beauty, I think, of conspiracy theories, right? Is there's always at least one kernel of truth or one kernel of, of something that could be real, right? That, that funnels, that pushes this theory along. I think the most pertinent point you've made through this entire argument is quite easy and quite obvious and quite simple, is that computers are part of their, our everyday lives now. They are universal, they're accessible, they are something that we interact with daily at many tiers as well, because I think people don't appreciate that, you know, when you when you go on the web, you're not interacting with just your computer, you're in interacting with other people's computers, with Facebook's computers, with WhatsApp's computers, with you know, my computers even, because you've got to bear in mind, I have websites and I have you know, programs online that people can access. And I think that is the really scary part, is that there's this vast world that 99% of people don't understand. And, and you acknowledge, as someone who has both programming experience and this kind of academic experience, computers are really scary, right? Like, I think they, they have the potential to be very, very um, uncertain. And, and this kind of vast space that just, like, the final frontier, right? This, like, vast space that for most people is hard to have any control over we've put a lot of power into computers hands so i say you know, that if you truly 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 understood how they were functioning under the hood in the degree of detail that myself and a lot of my colleagues do and i say a lot of my colleagues because even some of my colleagues don't yeah. understand the detail to which i understand or to which a lot of my superiors and a lot of my supervisors understand you would be shocked and maybe even to an extent horrified to find out how much trust and how much faith we put into programs that we don't even know the answer to fundamental questions of yeah however and this is a big, big, big however. It's a big but. It's a big but. <laughs> there are a lot of very, very well-intentioned people that underpin the computer science industry. I'd like to think, and I, I, I don't mean this is true to my own home, I'd like to think that I'm one of them. I'd like to think that I am part of a massive collective of people that truly believe in the need for not only computer science to be open and accessible, but for it to be an industry for change and for the greater good. And it's very easy to tarnish us with the same brush, but I beg and I implore anyone listening not to, because there are many of us who truly do believe that computers can make many people's lives much better than they are currently and 
that should be enough. So with that, uh, I think we've concluded the main part of the podcast. So before I introduce next week's topic, which will, let me just state, be very, very different from this week's. Do I get my PhD? And what from what school? I'm, I'm going to reward you a PhD. Yay! And because you vastly re- relied on my knowledge in order to now pass hang your on. Viva. <laughs> because you vastly now relied on, on my knowledge to pass your Viva. I am going to award you a PhD from King's College London. Do, do, do. Yay. That's a good school. That's a good school, Mom and Dad. Good school. It's a great school, yeah. Uh, God, I, I'm definitely not blowing my own trumpet at this point. Yeah. <laughs> um, yes, no, um, I think I've got to because I can't not seeing as you've relied so heavily on my knowledge. Hey, that's scholarship, baby. I'm really excited now. So what, what are we doing next week? What <laughs> okay. are we talking about next week? So we've just spent the past hour and a half, uh, this is like real time, talking, I think, about both things that are really funny, both crazy, and also some pretty like legit, you know, real world, serious, you know, humdrum kind of stuff. Next week, Adam, you're going to be in charge of presenting a wonderful dissertation on dinosaurs 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 not like the potato like frozen product but you're talking about like the prehistoric creature the word dinosaurs i feel like this has really been weaponized against me <laughs> nope you're gonna be talking about dinosaurs oh, I'm adam so is in a very stoic state now because we've talked about some serious stuff and i'm like you're gonna be talking about dinosaurs next week yeah this has probably been the most academic and least comedic podcast we've done so far exactly but you wait till next week where adam talks for 30 minutes about the stegosaurus that concludes this episode i mean you know continue to subscribe subscribe to us download our episodes we have a um, delightful twitter page that we've just started at livin l-i-v-i-n viva at Live in Viva, and you can also find our Facebook account, um, Live in La Viva Voce, and you can um, subscribe to that as well for more information. It's been wonderful having yet another opportunity to ramble at you for what will probably get cut down to a solid 30 minutes. <laughs> exactly. Thank you for listening to Living La Viva Voce. I hope you found this talk on computers interesting. Next week, you can tune in to myself talking about dinosaurs. Thank you so much. Tune in next week. Bye-bye. Hello. We'd like to issue a post-edit correction. Earlier in this podcast, I mentioned a book by Roberto Ibrahimski on optimizing Lua. The analogy that I drew from this book was not actually from this book at all. It's from another book. It's a book called Cryptographic Engineering. It is by Niels Ferguson, Bruce Schneier, and Teodoshi Kono. Um, and it's on cryptography. Uh, The analogy is still correct, it was just from the wrong book. Uh, My apologies for this, and we will try and ensure accuracy in the future.